for this spring beginning tonight, I'd like to do a series of teachings that are the most central teachings in the Buddhist tradition, the path of the Buddha, or, or what the Buddha taught, the ground of wisdom and practice that has been carried on through 2,500 years. I'd like to begin tonight with the teachings of the Eightfold Path. Some of you may have heard these different teachings that we'll do over these next weeks before. Um, I think they're worth repeating. (laughs) And these particular talks I haven't done here for quite a few years, for at least five or six years. The setting for the teaching of the Eightfold Path is in India, in the deep and thick forests along the river Ganges. Sometime after the Buddha's enlightenment as he was wandering, or so the story is told, through these forests in great joy and delight, the happiness of that inner awakening and freedom. And he returned to the Deer Park, which is a beautiful grove of trees, large banyan trees and others, with a soft forest floor, just a few miles outside of the holy city of Benares. And there he found his old companions from when he had practiced in the forest with the other ascetics. And he began to teach them. And his first teachings to them were the noble truths that we'll speak of later, and the path of practice. The Buddha said to them, my friends, or so it is written, the Blessed One spoke, the words and teachings of all Buddhas are concerned with but one thing, the practical path to human happiness or freedom, what is called the sure heart's release. And so the teachings here at Spirit Rock or at all the different kinds of centers, Zen centers and Tibetan centers and all of the flavors of Buddhism have at their center the possibility of inner freedom or liberation. And it can look different at different times, different colored robes and chanting. So the Buddha spoke about this possibility of liberation of freedom, of finding that in, in the midst of this very life. And all the forms of Buddhist practice point back to this. And to undertake this journey, he offered a map, which was called the Noble Eightfold Path. Noble because no matter what circumstance one finds oneself in, it is a guideline to this awakening. It transcends the time and changes and circumstances, even in the killing fields of Cambodia or the grave difficulties and dictatorship of the Burmese people. Or this friend of mine who I learned in the last days, who works with youth gangs in Chicago, that these young people that he'd been fostering and mentoring and done all these wonderful things with, somebody... uh, someone in some fashion or other came and baited them and they got back into a fight, a terrible one, which people were killed. Um, After all this effort to find a kind of awakening for these young men, no matter what the circumstances of our life as well, the path is the same. In this great forest, said the Buddha, I saw an ancient path, a road traveled by the enlightened ones, the awakened ones before me. And I traveled this same road. So what is this path that's universal 
in all the circumstances of life. It begins the Eightfold Path with what is called the first step of wise understanding. And wise, or sometimes it's called right understanding, but I'll use wise understanding. Wise understanding asks a question of us. What do we want to do with this life we have been given? If we look at the world to the extent that it is governed by the forces of greed and aggression and delusion, it gets entangled in war and violence, there's fear and racism and confusion, and we lose ourselves in those fields of activity. Seneca, written in Latin, he wrote, a bull contents himself with one meadow and a f- one forest is enough for a hundred elephants. But the little body of man can devour more than all other living creatures. When we're not content, somehow we can devour and destroy. And we all know it. We've seen it in this world. But it's not just the struggles and sorrows of the world around us, quite personally in our own life. We find ourselves busy, constantly reacting, caught up at times in desires and fears and seeking, constantly moving, collecting, gathering. And it all seems so necessary to do, you know, the things that fill our days and our lives. Yet where are we really going? what's really important to us. Take just a moment to reflect in yourself. What is important? Where are you going? In the end, as we've said, the questions are very simple ones. Did I love well? Did I live fully, wisely, this human life? Did I learn to be free? Because our lives are actually quite short, this question of what do we want to do is what can lead us to that which is noble or sacred. Right understanding or wise understandings sees how often There is suffering in the world, unsatisfactoriness, confusion. How often human beings get caught up in things, things are not right, others and ourselves. And yet senses the possibility, the potential for each of us to live in another way. To live in a way of fulfillment, of awakening, the possibility of greater compassion that each of us could live through our own hearts, the possibility of freedom. And this wise understanding senses this. This is our own true nature, our Buddha nature. It knows it's possible and understands as well that it doesn't happen by accident. It's as if Inwardly, we understand the law of karma, which is the patterns or the law of cause and effect, that things don't just happen by hoping or wishing or imagining. But to find a freedom or to grow in this great capacity for awareness and compassion, it requires that we give our life to that. Do not seek to follow in the footsteps of the wise, says Zen Master Basho. Seek instead what they sought. Don't follow in their footsteps, but seek what they sought. Which is to say, take your own life and give it attention and make it into your path. My teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way. He said, traditionally, the Eightfold Path is taught with eight steps, such as right understanding, right speech, right concentration, and so forth. 
But the true Eightfold Path is within us. Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, a tongue, and a body. These eight doors are our entire path, and the mind is the one that walks on the path. Know these doors, the experiences of this life. Examine them, and all the Dharma will be revealed. That is, we take this life we've been given and train ourselves in awareness and compassion, mindfulness, which is a kind of sacred presence, to see what is so, what this freedom might be in the midst of our very own experience. So that's the first step, sensing this possibility and knowing it doesn't happen by accident. It comes through our own giving ourselves to awareness, attention. Then the second step of the Eightfold Path, after sensing this possibility, is called wise aspiration or attitude. What quality we bring to the path of our life. And the first aspect of this wise aspiration is the quality of discovery or openness of mind to discover what is so in ourselves, in our life, in our situation. It has with it a kind, kind of tenderness or caring, a constancy, and a deep questioning. What is this we've been given? What should we do with our life? An old Sufi story. There was a man who had studied much in the schools of wisdom and gained much and finally died in the fullness of time, found himself at the gates of eternity. An angel of light approached him and said, Go no further, O mortal, until you have proved to me your worthiness to enter into paradise. But the man answered, Just a minute now. First of all, can you prove to me this is a real heaven and not just the wishful fantasy of my disordered mind undergoing death? <laughs> and before the angel could reply, a voice from inside the gates shouted, Let him in. He's one of us. <laughs> So to walk this path of our own eyes and ears and nose and tongue and body, to find this awakening of our Buddha nature requires the quality of discovery, of questioning everything. What really matters? How can we live freely? And it requires as well, or asks, this wise aspiration, a quality of dedication or courage the willingness not just to follow our habitual ways of being, which react to pain and try to fulfill our desires, open the refrigerator and turn on the TV and you know, do all the things to distract ourselves or go to sleep. But instead of following habit, a kind of inner renunciation where we stop and study and see what will bring us freedom today in work, in love, in the things that we care for in the world. This is from a Zen teacher who is a Dutchman, Van de Wettering. He wrote, You are eight years old. It is Sunday evening. You have been granted an extra hour before bed. The family is playing Monopoly. You have been told you are now big enough to join them. You lose. You are losing continuously. Your stomach tightens with fear. Nearly all your possessions are gone. The money pile in front of you is almost gone. Your brothers are snatching all the houses from your streets. The last street is being sold. You have to give in. You have lost. And suddenly you remember that it is only a game. You jump up with joy and you accidentally knock the game over. 
and the others get irritated with you, but you laugh as you go upstairs because you remember what you have seen and you have inside an immeasurable and wonderful freedom. So it's that. Here we are in the midst of whatever game you are playing this morning or this afternoon or tomorrow or next week. And then, ding, this little thing goes, oh, it's only a game. The willingness not just to follow the habits and react and get lost, but to stop again and see this for what it is. So this is the beginning of this path sense of the possibility of our own Buddha nature, the willingness to question, to open, to discover. And this awakening, this sense, is then supported by the next three steps of the Eightfold Path, which are called wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And they all speak to bringing an awareness or consciousness to how we act and move in the world. As Gandhi said, my life is my message. It's who we are and not what we wish to be. It's easier to love a thousand people in your meditation than one person close up. You understand this, yes? So these speak to the reality of this path, not the fantasy of it, but the actual living of this. To be free means to be free in our actions and speech and livelihood, not bound by fear or greed or anger. (coughs) The freedom that's spoken of is the freedom of the heart that doesn't get caught in these things to act in such a way that no matter what happens, there is no regret. That you've been so true to yourself that no matter how it comes out, there isn't regret. And these wise actions come from when the heart is in harmony with the world around us, senses that we are not separate, like Chief Seattle's teachings that we did not weave the web of life. We are merely strands in it. There are in the ecological teachings of uh, the biosphere a series of species that are called keystone species. They're particularly important in studying endangered species. For example, in the Amazon rainforest, there's a whole variety of species of wasps each of which pollinates a particular kind of fig tree. And in the periods when it doesn't always rain in the rainforests, and there are certain dry periods where most of the fruit and the other food is gone except the figs. And if one species of wasp were to die out or be killed, then a whole forest area filled with these fig trees which are the main sources of food in the dry season, would also die out. And then the birds and the monkeys and the jaguars and the other creatures that live one on another would also die out. And it's really like this with all things. We are so deeply connected. So to awaken in this path, means to recognize that our speech and actions have consequences in the world that we are connected with it and to take a responsibility to live our life as if we would to say, may my life be of benefit for all that I share life with. To not sense this illusion of separateness but see our connectedness. Now it's very specific that's all kind of a nice spiritual you know, thing to talk about. Be kind to everybody and we're not separate and so forth. But how do you do it? And so there's a very specific set of practices or teachings that are invoked in this. Why speech is that speech that is conscious. 
it remembers, in a sense, who we are. We spend a lot of time talking, as you know. I mean, it's my business, so I kind of do it a lot, but I know I'm not the only one. We're talking and blabbing and communicating and imagining and sharing things with people back and forth and so, so on all the time. Yet often what we really want to say is very simple. Sometimes all we want to say is, hello, you know, I'm in here, are you in there? And so we just kind of want to make a moment of connection. Or maybe we just want to say, I love you to somebody, but that's kind of, you don't say that. So we talk about our summer vacation plans, you know, or the weather or something like that. Remember this passage from Thomas Merton that I read often. Then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire can reach the core of their reality, the person that each one is in God's eyes. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. (laughs) And so why speech is a recognition of that possibility when we speak to one another of how truly we can make our communication come from our wisdom, our connectedness. Speech can either be associated with gossip, inflation, self-serving, fear, untruth, all that stuff, which makes suffering. Or it can be speech, wise speech, that is both truthful and helpful. Those two things together. So again, as the Buddha gave instructions in this practice. In due season will I speak. Truthfully will I speak. Gently, not harshly, conducive to concord will my words be. With clear intention will I speak. And to their benefit will I speak, not to their loss. Those are the kind of principles of wise speech. And you can hear the truthfulness in it and the need to pay attention to what our purpose is in speaking. It's really one of the best places to study the power of the heart, the power of intention, in our words to one another. Because you can say almost the same words to a person as a way to get back at them a little bit or one-up them, or to listen, to be helpful. The very same words with a different intention or tone and you get an entirely different response. There was a large Illinois psychiatric hospital and clinic that was at the end of a toll road. And there were gates on the toll road where you had to pay pay the toll, but it was on the honor system. And one of the psychologists at the hospital decided to do a study, put a little video camera there to see who was paying and who wasn't. But the study went further, because in particular he was watching the cars of the therapists at the hospital, (laughs) right? And also then, after rating who paid and who didn't of the therapist, he took that and compared it to the success rate of the therapists in their work. And the conclusion of the study was that the therapists who paid their tolls, theirs were the patients that got better. Isn't that interesting? There is a tremendous power in truthfulness. Not the kind of brutal honesty, but truthfulness combined with a compassionate heart to say what is true and what is helpful to others. And words have an enormous power in our life. You can say a few words in anger and they resonate and last for years, for lifetimes, it seems. Or in a moment you can say, I love you to someone or some other deep and tender connection through your words. And that too will last and last and last. It means so much. It's like the Sufi master. There was a village with a very sick child, the child of the headman. And the healers and the medicine people came and they did what they could, but nothing 
nothing availed them. And this dervish, this master, was coming through the village, and they called him into the house of the headman. Would you help? He said, oh, of course I can. And he came to the child, and he placed his hands on the child for a moment and said a whole series of beautiful blessings and powerful prayers, invocations, and then turned to the group that was gathered around and said, now he will be well. And one of the men who was there became very indignant And he said, what do you mean? You say a few words over this kid we've been trying to heal for a long time, and you say, now he will be well? How do a few words have the power to heal anybody? And the master looked back at this man and said, you don't understand anything at all. You are a complete and asinine fool. (laughs) And said this in front of the whole village. Well, the man turned red. He got angry. He was even ready to strike the master. And the master said, see? If a few words can turn you red and angry and completely change your energy, why should not a few other words have the power to heal? It's like that, isn't it? Our words have that possibility. Better than a thousand useless words is one word leading to the truth, says the Buddha again in the Dhammapada. So this is a beautiful practice on this path, to begin to notice the intention before we speak. What is this intention? To touch another, to share something important or interesting or playful, um, to be helpful in some way, you know, or to get back, or what is it that's there? And as you notice the intention, there comes the possibility of a freedom and a deeper and truer connection. Wise speech, wise action, the next step of the Eightfold Path. Wise action speaks of non-harming. Life lives on life. We live on life and then we become the food for other life. The commitment of wise action or right action is to minimize the harm that we do to others, to not purposefully create pain or conflict with others around us, to support that which is beautiful. So it is the path to freedom or happiness. In the simple and most crude way to say it is that it's very hard to meditate or have peace of heart after a day of killing and stealing. Try it. (laughs) And in those societies where there is frequent stealing and killing and lying, where this is the way people act with one another, they become fearful, paranoid, barricaded, painful societies to live in as human beings. So wise action is articulated or personified in certain precepts that give a basis or the practice for this freedom of heart that can develop. The first of them is not to kill, which is really the cultivation of a reverence for life, not even killing small things if you can avoid it. I remember being with the Dalai Lama and he was giving some teachings about the respect for all life. And he said, here, you know, I'm the Dalai Lama. I'm supposed to be this great and, you know, important teacher. And he said, look over there. And there was this little ant crawling by. And he said, actually, you have to admire this ant because perhaps it has more innocence than I do. Or perhaps, he said, looking at it, it has more patience than I do. And then he laughed, you know, that wonderful Dalai Lama laugh. The ants are very patient, he said. Or that spider, you know, that spider is more sure-footed than I am. Or it can make something extremely beautiful that I could never make. And if you look deeply, he said, you can see something beautiful or valuable in every form of life. So the first of these basic practices is to not kill as best as you can. Because you'll notice that even the little forms of life don't seem to like it. 
It's like that cartoon I always mention from the New Yorker in hunting season, the two deer on the hillside and the two hunters down below and the caption underneath the deer are talking to one another. Why don't they thin their own goddamn herds? You know? Maybe there aren't too many deer. There's some other problem here. So it's a reverence for life so that we are in harmony with it, a freedom to not be in conflict. And the second is, in this wise action, the second practice is not to steal. Not to take that which doesn't belong to us. Not to create the fear and paranoia that comes with people stealing from one another. But more deeply, it is a caring for what's been given, not grasping it, but using it, moving through this world in a wise way. In the end, we don't possess things anyway. We're just lent them for this particular trip, like that Monopoly game, where the accountant in the firm, or the caretaker for a little while, and so, not only is it not to steal, but also somehow the sharing of what we have, a simplicity and a generosity. Do you know anyone who's really generous who's not happy? It's this wonderful quality that comes. And I remember going out with my alms bowl in the morning as a monk, and it was one of the most... Um, beautiful experiences in my life to go out just at dawn barefoot through the streets of these villages and have people wait in a quite reverent way and give you whatever food they had for the day, some of it. And they did it with such kindness, some of them very poor. But the food they gave, it was as if they were saying, we're going to give even of the little that we have because we so deeply value what you symbolize, what your life is about. And we want that in our lives and in the society. The monks were so important to them because they symbolized this awakening and freedom. That kind of generosity, there was no way you could repay it. Just kind of drink it in. You can't say, thank you for the mango. That's just what I wanted for breakfast. You could do it, you have to do it in silence, and then you go back and you take it inside um, and you're so honored by someone else's generosity that all that you can do is really devote yourself to your practice. So not only not stealing, but a generosity and a simplicity. For as it's said, it is possible to have outer liberty and still be enslaved. All kinds of things can enslave us. To know that the purpose of our life isn't to gain and accumulate because we can't take it with us. It's that simple. Generosity and caring for the world. The third of these practices, not killing, not stealing, is refraining from sexual misconduct. I usually ask in this particular teaching how many people in the room have made idiots of themselves in their sexual relations. But then I say, you don't need to raise your hands because we already know the answer, right? Probably not a hand in the room that wouldn't go up. The power of sexuality can be used to harm with greed and compulsion and aggression and attachment. And it can cause enormous harm to a second or third person or more. We can betray ourselves or betray another. It's so powerful because it's close to birth and death and something sacred. So in one way it can be associated with greed and compulsion and anger. And on the other hand it can be associated with intimacy and tenderness, it can be an expression of love and connection. And this part of the practice of freedom is to find the freedom in sexuality that does not cause harm to others, but is an expression of what's beautiful. And the fourth of these is to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. 
we've been called in some ways an addicted society. All these ways that we put ourselves to sleep all the time, kind of modern consumer culture. And the idea here is to awaken, to wake up. But the most significant addictions, alcohol, drugs, and so forth, intoxicants, have a huge cost. 10 million drug addicts, 20 million alcoholics. The majority of auto fatalities and deaths. The majority of child abuse. The majority of fires that burn people's homes down. The incredible pain in family after family where there's a misuse of drugs and alcohol. And the stupendous amount of suffering. A great cost. So it's not only to refrain from that, but in its opposite, to do those things that awaken ourselves instead of put us to sleep. And if you are involved in addiction, rather than saying it's wrong or sinful, you want to become curious. When is it that you want to put yourself to sleep? And what is it that you're afraid of, that you don't feel your heart could stand to stay present for? And is that really true? Or is it possible to awaken even there? So wise action, the path to happiness, is not grasping or stealing or killing or harming others out of the forces of greed and aggression and need, but releasing those and finding an inner freedom of heart that includes reverence and generosity and simplicity, caring for one another. And there's a tremendous power to this path if we follow it. Can you imagine this world if it took even one precept, even half a precept, human beings? You know, and they're part of every great spiritual system. It's not just Buddhist. Imagine if we didn't, didn't even take the precept not to kill, just didn't kill human beings. What a different earth it would be. Or if we told the truth. Wow. Forget gossiping and all that. Just told the truth. Or suppose we just didn't steal land. You know, just pick one thing. It would entirely change our earth. The power of such a simple and fundamental (coughs) practice. So that's wise action. The action of the heart that's free, that doesn't get involved in causing harm. Then there's wise livelihood to not cause harm through drugs, selling drugs or weapons is the traditional way it's described. But more importantly, it is using our work to awaken. This is from Bruce Chatwin. He writes, A white explorer in Africa, anxious to press ahead with his journey, paid his porters for a series of forced marches. But they, almost within reach of their destination, set down their bundles and refused to budge. No amount of extra payment would convince them otherwise. They said they had to wait for their souls to catch up. (laughs) And it's like that, isn't it? I mean, we can be so lost in what we're doing that we lose our soul in the process. There is a longing in all of us to give back something beautiful to the earth and the society of the the world around us. There's a joy in having work, not the perfect work, because even the perfect work, like the perfect partner, you know how long that lasts. I mean, for a day it's perfect and then it's something else, right? And if you're in India and your parents were shoemakers or farmers or whatever, you become the shoemaker or the farmer. It's not like you're supposed to have this choice of everything, this American myth that we have. Sometimes you have to do the work that's given. But how do you do it? If you're the toll taker on the Golden Gate Bridge, as there is once in a while, those toll takers that welcome you to the city. It's quite fantastic. The city of St. Francis, won't you come in, please? Oh, thank you. You know, You say, well, my job is boring. I work on an assembly line. I worked on an assembly line for a while at the Beacon Gauge Factory. These little pieces in these gauges. Do you know what? The only thing more boring that I found is meditation. (laughs) It's the same thing. Following your breath, taking another step. 
<coughs> the spirit is how we do it. The freedom is there in how we do it. Like the old Hasid who was asked about his master, what was most important to your master? Whatever he happened to be doing at the moment was most important to him. But that, you, but that the Lord build your house, you build it in vain, it says in the Bible. And what that means is not only to avoid livelihood that causes harm, but to take our work and make it the place of awakening. Here too we grow in awareness, mindfulness, kindness, and compassion. That it becomes the place to serve as well as awaken. And it gives strength to the heart then in any circumstance. And then there are three more steps. We've had the understandings, the right aspiration to discover, to sense the potential of awakening, and then right speech or wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. The last three are the keys to the art of meditation. Next step is called wise effort. How to make a wise effort in spiritual life. It is the effort to be present, to awaken where we are. It's easy to get impatient, you know, especially in spiritual practice, because nothing seems to be changing the world. You know, you get up and you go to sleep, and it's just the same every day in a certain way. It's like the old woman, the impatient old dowager in this fancy uh, apartment house in New York, lots of floors. She wanted to go out, and she rang the bell for the elevator, and it didn't come, and she rang it again a few times, and it took a long time for the elevator to get up to her. And finally the door opened, and she kind of yelled at the elevator operator, young man, where have you been? And he looked back at her and he said, lady, where can you go in an elevator? (laughs) The idea of wise effort is not to go someplace else other than where we are, but to make the effort to actually be here. When I asked at one point my teacher, Ajahn Chah, isn't meditation kind of like self-hypnosis? He said, actually, it's more like de-hypnosis. You're already hypnotized. To see with eyes unclouded by longing, to see the world as it is, this moment, and bow to that. So wise effort isn't the struggle to change the world or perfect it, but to find that perfection that rests in the world just now. Remember the story of the Zen master and the student who came and said, how long will it take me to get enlightened? The master looked at him, he said, for someone like you, probably 10 years. The student said, what if I really work at it? He said, oh, then probably 20 in your case. I made a mistake. And then he protested, why did you double it? And the master looked back and he said, no, come to think of it for you, probably 30 years. (laughs) And that's all the struggle to be somewhere else. Yet, as Kabir says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. It is here in this moment. The Tao says it, speaking of water, that the yielding conquers the resistant, the soft conquers the hard, is a fact known by all, yet used by few. Sometimes, you know, when I started to teach as well when I was younger, I used to talk more about the warrior and the kind of spiritual fire and so forth. It's good for young men. But um, I've discovered that what's more helpful is really to speak about the effort of the heart to be present, to be balanced in this moment. The willingness to be here with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, to be where we are, to see what is true, to see what we own. (laughs) Krishnamurti put it this way, only when the mind is still, tranquil, not expecting or grasping or resisting a single thing, Is it possible to see what is true? And it is the truth that liberates and not your effort to be free. 
It is the seeing of life as it is that brings this freedom. So the wise effort is that presence. And then there's wise mindfulness, right mindfulness, which is a wonderful capacity. It's this capacity that each of us has to be fully here, to be alive, awake. Mindfulness sometimes is called a sacred presence because we open to this life as it is in this moment and this and this. And if we reflect how much of our life is on automatic pilot, half asleep, driving from one place to another or on the beach or wherever we are, kind of lost in our thoughts, busy doing something not really here. And what it's like in those other times when we give ourselves wholeheartedly to our life, when we're fully present. Wise mindfulness is this possibility of being present. Now, I don't want to make it sound too impossible to you. And I say this on retreats, people will come in on the fifth day of a 10-day retreat and they'll say, I'm not really very aware still. I've been sitting and walking and sitting and walking, paying attention. And I say, well, how much of the time are you here? Oh, maybe five or six percent of the time. The rest I'm off in thoughts and fantasies and so forth. And I might look at them and say, you know, well, the day you came here, the first day, you were probably awake, really present, one percent of the time, maybe two at best. And the rest was fantasy and worrying and imagining. And now it's 6%. Doesn't feel like much. 94% still gone, right? (laughs) But actually, in these five days, you have learned to be here three times as much as you were before. And that three times as much is amazing. It doesn't take that much. Just a little bit more to really be here and see and sense, and things start to open up. Wise mindfulness also means the capacity to be present without judging, without grasping or resisting, liking and disliking. Even you can like and dislike, but just seeing, it's like monopoly, oh, there's liking and there's disliking, and resting in that place of openness. And it becomes easier. It's like We use the image of training the puppy, kind of reminding yourself. It's the coming back again and again. And at first it's a struggle, and then it becomes more natural to come back to be where we are, present for this amazing show. (coughs) The most visible artists I know are those whose medium is life itself. The ones who express the inexpressible, Without brush, chisel, clay, or guitar, they neither paint nor sculpt. Their medium is being. Whoever has, excuse me, whoever their presence touches has increased life. They are the artists of being fully alive. And we all know them, we meet them, or we meet them in those moments in our life. And what it's like to be in the presence of someone who for that time is fully there. Because being present in that way, things open. The mind quiets, the past and future disappear. The whole sense of being extends, becomes part of the world. Fear drops away, joy comes uninvited. This awareness is called the gateway to the deathless. And the last step of this path is wise concentration. Born of wise understanding, the sense of this human potential of our Buddha nature, born of wise action, wise effort and mindfulness, comes a steadiness of being that brings together the body and heart and mind. There's a relaxation, a trust, a connection with that which is timeless. And again, it can come through practice, through daily meditation. You just learn that it's okay, you can trust, you can let go. It's wonderful. If thine eye be single, 
says Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas, if thine eye be single, the whole body will fill with light. If thine eye be single, if everything comes together, the body and heart and mind completely connected, things become illuminated, filled with light. And this quality of steadiness helps in all things, computer programming, making of pottery or painting, in business, in lovemaking. It's the same principle of presence. It is also this steadiness, this depth of presence that dissolves the boundaries, that moves us beyond the skin-encapsulated ego. So that William James talked about how all around us lie infinite varieties of consciousness. This is Dag Hammarskjöld, the first Secretary General of the United Nations. In the point of rest at the center of our being, we encounter a world where all things are at rest in the same way. Then a tree becomes a mystery, a cloud, a revelation, and each human a cosmos of whose riches we can only catch glimpses. The life of simplicity is simple, but it opens to us a book in which we never get beyond the first syllable and the first page. This simple way of being that he speaks of. So the Buddha teaches this path, or taught this path, for freedom, for wise living, for awakening the heart of compassion. And we can sense this path in ourselves, the understanding of what's possible, the openness of being, the compassion that comes in all life like ourselves that we care for, the wise effort to be present, to be alive, the awakening of our own knowing. And it's here in a breath, in our thoughts, with our words and actions. And we talk about it as a path, but actually that's a fiction because the journey is pathless. It always leads back like a great circle to the one place where we started, this present moment the great space of this eternal present. Here's a Western koan for you. See if you can understand this. What happens to the whole when the cheese is gone? (laughs) Now you may wonder where that comes from in this talk. That's actually from Bertolt Brecht. What happens to the whole when the cheese is gone? There's this sense that somehow we're separate from all of this. But what happens in that mysterious moment when we're born or that mysterious moment when we die? Where do we come from? Are we this body? Is that who we are? Or maybe we're something else and we just rent this body, so to speak. We get to use it with care or reverence. Life is this simple, says Thomas Merton. We are living in a world that is absolutely transparent and the divine is shining through it all the time. This is not just a story or a fable, it is true. To be on this path, which we are in any moment that we pay attention deeply, is to enter the human realm with this question, what is this, what is possible? And it leads to trust, freedom, tremendous joy, the trust that we've been given enough, enough sorrows, enough struggles, enough beautiful things, that we too, like every other Buddha, can awaken. There's a certain privilege in being uh, in a human body that is talked about again and again by the various masters of Tibetan, Japan. This human body at peace with itself 
is more precious than the rarest of jewels. Cherish your body. It is yours this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty. It is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief, like lightning in the sky. This life, you must know, was the tiny splash of a raindrop. That is where it was born. A thing of beauty that passes away even after it comes into being. Therefore, set your heart, treasure the time you have been given, for this is all that matters. Our life is our path, as Ajahn Chah said, two eyes and ears, nose, nostrils, tongue, and body. He goes on, the heart of this path is so simple, no need for long explanations. Give up clinging to attachment and hate, just rest with things as they are. That's all I do in my own practice. Do not try to become anything, do not make yourself into anything. Do not be a meditator. Do not become enlightened. Do not pass go. When you sit, just let it be. When you walk, let it be. Grasp at nothing, resist nothing. Of course, there are dozens of meditation techniques, visualizations, mantras, sacred practices to develop samadhi, all the kinds of vipassana. But it all comes back to this, doesn't it? Just let it all be. Step over here where it is cool, out of the battle. Why not give it a try? So let's sit for a moment. And as you sit, let yourself sense the beauty or preciousness of this human birth that you've been given this life. And sense as well your dedication to your own path of awakening. What is really important? What do you wish to do with this wonderful life, with its joys and sorrows that has been given to you? Let's do then this very, very simple chant. And the chant is the word namo, which means I honor, pay respects, bow to. And we'll chant the word N-A-M-O, namo, nine times. And as you chant it, you can pay respects to yourself, to your own body, to the most beautiful intentions of your heart, to those around you, to whatever in the world you wish to pay respects to. And then we'll go back out into the world, follow our path. Na mo na
May your week be filled with blessings and you, may you find the joy of the awakened heart in everything you do. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.